listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 13. Everything okay back there? Okay. I heard a crash and people looked away. I am so thankful for you, and I'm so thankful for God's Word, and I'm just tickled that I get to preach God's Word to you this morning. I don't want to take that for granted. I think sometimes I do, and I'm just so thankful to be here with you. We're going to finish the second half of John 13 this morning. We've been preaching our way through John. Uh, Next week, Robert is going to begin the first half of John 14. We're just going to keep plowing through this summer, and Lord willing, we'll be done with John sometime in the fall, I think. No promises. But we come now to a portion of John 13 where Jesus begins. He's moved from his public ministry into his private ministry. Two weeks ago, before Reuben's wonderful sermon on the bronze serpent in Numbers 21, last week, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the first part of John 13. And now, the second part of John 13 is going to be broken up into sort of three parts that might seem a little disjointed. So let me give you a kind of synopsis of the flow of John 13, and then we're going to read our way through it. But let me tell you our plan of attack. The first section here is going to be Jesus predicting his betrayal by Judas. And then there's going to be this seemingly unconnected transition after Judas runs out of the room where Jesus is going to give a new commandment, a famous passage in John about how we are to love one another. And then the, the last part, the last few verses, are Jesus humbling Peter and predicting Peter's denial of him. Now here's my plan of attack. We're going to read through the balance of this passage. We're going to go rather quickly, and we're going to look at the prediction of Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, but we're going to sort of skim over those because those are going to be picked up again in John chapter 18, and we're going to take a deeper dive into those. And we're going to zero in on verses 31 through 35 and Jesus's new commandment about how we are to love one another. Before we read the passage, I want to pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this Sunday morning. Thank you for June 12th, 2022. This is the day that you've made and we rejoice in it. Lord, we come to you in the name of your Son, who is holy, as Hebrews says. He's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, But yet he's come near to us. He has become our mediator. He's become like us in every way, tempted yet without sin. He's become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation, to satisfy the wrath for our sins so that all those that trust in you can be reconciled to you through your Son. So Lord, we come to you in his name knowing that we have been made alive by your Spirit And now we ask you to wash us with your word. Lord, as we read this passage, show us wonderful things. Go far beyond my planned statements and words and use this word by your spirit 
to make your people more like Jesus and to open the eyes of any that might be blind in this room to the glories of the grace of the gospel. And Lord, give them a new heart that they might believe. Help me, Lord, to serve these people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look first at Jesus' prediction of his betrayal. Verse 18, John chapter 13, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking now, and he has just washed the feet of his disciples, and he says, I am now, he's going to take this turn into predicting his betrayal. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quote of Psalm 41, by the way, of a a Psalm of David, where David is lamenting how his enemies have turned against him and betrayed him. And, and Jesus is showing us how really the Old Testament in every way is, is pointing. It's a sign. It's a shadow pointing us to Jesus. And he becomes the fulfillment even of this event in David's life on a, in a temporary sense about how he was betrayed. And he's a kind of picture of Christ. And now Jesus ultimately is betrayed. I'm telling you this now, verse 19, before it takes place, that even when it does take place, that you may believe that I am He. So in other words, Jesus knows the future. Nothing's happening to Jesus. Nothing is surprising Jesus. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus, by virtue of the fact that He knows the future, is giving us a signal that He is God. And even though this great evil is about to take place, He's not preventing it. He's telling His disciples that it's going to happen. He's fortifying their strength. And as we read things like this in the Gospels, I pray that it would give us strength because we too live in a world where we know that evil things are going to happen to us. And this world is a chaotic place. And yet, Jesus is in control of all of it and has purposes for all of it. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Verse 21, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So can you imagine? We are about 24. This is Thursday night. And chapters 13, where we're at now, all the way through chapter 17 is called the farewell discourse. It's Jesus' last teaching his last time with his disciples it's when the last supper takes place and we're put, we're getting down into that we're we're starting to convene these hours this last supper and jesus is starting to prepare this meal eat with his disciples and he tells them that one of them will betray him imagine how that felt i mean we we're familiar maybe vaguely with this text maybe we've read it recently But just imagine the tension in the room, all that you've been through with Jesus, if you're one of the twelve, and he says that one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, who's this one that he loved? This is, I think, has been historically understood as being John himself, John the gospel writer. And this is the first time that John refers to himself in this third-person anonymous sort of way, but he's going to refer to himself in this way several more times as we close out Jesus' life. So really, from now until the end of John, we're going to cover really about three days from Jesus's, uh, from the Last Supper all the way to his resurrection. And we're going to see John refer to him in this anonymous way. It's a kind of 
act of humility. And, and it's, it's also owing to this close relationship that John had with him. One of his disciples, verse 23, whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So, verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to ask to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So let's make sure we get in the scene now. Peter, loudmouth, speak first, think later Peter, is so taken aback by what Jesus has just said that one of you is going to betray me that even Peter just doesn't have anything really to say. He kind of elbows John and says, why don't you ask him is the motion that he seems to be insinuating. So that disciple, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, take note that the only person who really heard those words was John. And he dips it. He does exactly what he told John he's going to do. He gives it to Judas. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, this is Jesus speaking to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him, maybe except for John, who's still processing things. What's going on here? Can you imagine being John? All this is happening so quickly. Jesus has just said, somebody's going to betray me. Peter elbows you. You lean in. You ask Jesus, who's it, who's it going to be? Jesus says, the one that I give this bread to, he gives it to Judas, and then he says this to him. Verse 29, some thought that because Jesus, G- Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And we won't see Judas again until John 18 when he arrives, having already betrayed Jesus with his band of soldiers ready to take Jesus into custody. Can you imagine being John in this moment and what you've just witnessed? This one that you have walked with for three years and now Jesus has just told you that he is going to betray him? Friends, we'll get back into it in John chapter 18, and we dipped into it a little bit last week when we looked at John 13 and the washing of the feet, when Jesus tipped our, 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 our attention a little bit that one would betray. This is just a warning to us that Jesus, Judas has followed Jesus for three years. He's seen him do incredible miracles. He's seen him walk on water, feed the multitudes, raise the dead, and yet his heart is still blind. Friends, it is possible to be utterly outwardly religious and on your way to hell. More when we get to John 18. Now verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, 
And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I think Jesus is speaking there of the cross. In other words, you can't come with me to what I'm about to do. A new commandment, verses 34 and 35. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to circle back after we read the rest of the passage. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. These are some of the most famous words in all of John's gospel. We'll circle back to that in just a moment and spend the balance of our time looking at those few verses. And now the final portion of this passage. So we have Jesus predicting Judas's betrayal. He leaves the room. Can you imagine the heads are spinning of the disciples? What's going on? Especially John. Jesus, in all of this divine calmness that he has, now turns his attention and speaks about love that he has for his disciples and how they are to have for each other. And then Simon has, Simon Peter now seems to have regained himself and, and, and reverts back to his customary sort of boldness. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Talk about getting humbled. I mean, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. You, you, no, no. Sit back down and listen. So what does Jesus' command? So think about the flow of this passage. Judas' betrayal predicted. Peter's humility here. His denial predicted. And in the middle of this, Jesus gives this command to love one another. Let's look at this command. Let's look at verses 31 through 35. And then I want to end by giving us two ways to love one another. What's the basis of this command that Jesus, I think the, it's rather straightforward. It's a rather famous passage. Jesus is telling his followers to love one another. But what's the basis of how they are to love one another? He says, because just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so I think Jesus is not just speaking about how he's served them and loved them and washed their feet and been kind to them, but he's speaking in a future sense of how he will love them on the cross, how this great love of God will be shown on the cross. In fact, the, the glory of God will be shown on the cross. Verses 31 and 32 speak about the glory of the Son of Man. It's, it's coming. Now this time is here. It's like the... The timetable, the, the clock on the crucifixion has been activated. Judas has done his deed and he's left the room and now Jesus is saying, okay, it's beginning. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Up to this point in John, Jesus has been careful to say, my time has not yet come. There's been a few times where he would do a miracle and everybody wanted to say, well, let's just take this thing public. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 now's not the time. But now in verse 31, Judas has left the room. Jesus is now saying, now's the time for man to be, the Son of Man to be glorified, speaking of himself, and God is glorified in him. What does that mean? What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the cross, that God will do what he has sent the Son to do. He will lead him to the cross, and the Son will voluntarily lay down his life on the cross as the greatest sign of love to bear the wrath of God, to consume it, to satisfy it, to remove it, to rise again in victory over it, and now call all that will hear to repent and believe. This is the love that Jesus is speaking about in verse 34 that he has, that he will have, that he has had before the foundations of the earth for his people. That's why in passages like Ephesians and others, it says that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And so Jesus is speaking in the future sense of what will happen in about 24 hours, this love that he will lay down his life for us. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian message. Not that you need to do better. Tyler alluded to it as he was praying for us after reading Ephesians 2. Not that we do better, but that God would satisfy his wrath. He would satisfy the penalty for our sin by sending his own son to bear the wrath of God for us so that all those that would trust in him would be reconciled to him. So the gospel at its core, dear ones, is that we are saved by God, but from God, from His wrath, through the love that God displays by giving the highest treasure of the universe, which is His Son, to bear His wrath in our place for all those that would trust in Him. And Jesus is saying that as I have loved you with this, with this gospel love, with this with this ultimate humility as the basis, as the foundation for your reconciliation, for your new life in me, as I have loved you, now let this be the, the reason that you love one another, this vertical love that you've experienced and will experience in the cross. Now let it flow out of you horizontally. And the purpose of that is so that the world, so that all people, verse 35, would know that you are my disciples. So I think what Jesus is saying here in verses 34 and 35 is that by the way you live together, your love for one another, your relationship in me is a means of grace. It's a means of evangelism whereby I will show my love to the world. That's what I think Jesus is saying in verses 34 and 35. He is saying love one another, not just because this is a Christian virtue, but because this is a way that I intend to bring all of my people to myself through the centuries by the way that you live out and display the gospel that you preach and confess. So he says, love one another. Now, I think that is simple enough, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Okay, Brad, great. Love one another. Thank you for a good sermon, mid-June. All right, let's go home, and we'll, 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 we'll fire up the grill, and we'll chalk that one off. We got through another one. We're halfway through the year, and isn't this nice? 
Well, if only serving one another theoretically was as easy as it sounds, but if you have done life in the church for more than about five minutes, you know that there's a little bit of grit. There's a little bit of jagged edge on that fish, isn't there? Well, why do I call it a fish? You know what I'm talking about. So I want us to consider in the balance of our time before we see two new members of Crosspoint, a husband and wife, be baptized, I want us to consider two ways, just two ways, by way of application on how we are to love one another. So here's the point, I think, of this passage that we're looking at, is that Jesus has loved us. He has borne the wrath of God. He has removed it. He has given us new birth. He has called us to himself. And now he wants us to love one another. He wants the vertical gospel, heavenly, divine wrath-absorbing love of God to bend out through our lives vertically, but towards one another. So Jesus, is, he's, he's in a sense, he's, he's making the great commandment, love God with all your heart and your neighbors, yourself, and he's giving it more shape. He's saying specifically, you, my followers, you, not just in a general sense, love your neighbor, but you love one another. And the way you, my followers, the way you Christians, the way you local church, the way you cross point, love each other in this kind of committed relationship as brothers and sisters together, I will use as a means to display my glory and draw others to myself through the centuries. That's what Jesus is saying. So now let's apply it. Two ways to serve one another. Two ways to love one another. First, by serving one another. This seems obvious enough. We love one another by tangibly serving one another. Now Jesus has just washed their feet. And this is the ultimate act of humility that, that, that the, the master would stoop down and assume a task that not even a servant would be uh, asked to do, but they would, they would ask like an outside slave that they would hire out to, to do this act of washing the feet. And Jesus, the master, is, is, is displaying utter humility by washing the feet of his disciples. And in like way, he says in verses 14 and 15 of John 13, as I've, as I've washed your feet, you're to wash one another's feet. Not necessarily as a physical act to be repeated through the centuries, but as, a, as an example of how we are to care for one another. And so I want to give you an example, an observation, and an encouragement on how we can serve one another in this church. There's a, there's a man, and I rarely do this. I rarely call people by name from the pulpit. I never do it in a negative sense, but I want to do it in a positive sense. There's a dear brother in this church. His name is Aubrey Walker, and he is getting up in years. He's a retired master sergeant from the Army, served in Vietnam, and he is currently battling, battling cancer, uh, some, some lung cancer, blood clots, numerous other health situations. Uh, he has been in and out of the hospital for treatment. Uh, last week, he was uh, scheduled as he's undergoing treatment for cancer and also dealing with several other health issues. He was scheduled to be an usher, and he woke up, had some symptoms, things weren't going well, and his lovely wife, Marcia, 
uh, against Aubrey's wishes, uh, strong-armed him, I think threatened his life, and told him, we are going to the emergency room. And at 6 o'clock on the way to the emergency room, Aubrey's first thought was, oh, I need to call Bill Harrison because I'm serving as an usher this morning. So you're on your way to the emergency room. Honey, I don't need to go to the emergency room. I've got to wear a blue shirt today. But Aubrey, tougher than nails, tougher than some old saddle on some horse that John Wayne used to ride, is thinking about you. He's thinking about you and not wanting to let you down as he's on the way to the emergency room and Marcia is chewing his ear off. Friends, that's, that's a kind of merry band of foot washer that we spoke about a couple weeks ago. What an example. But here, here's an observation. That's an example. Here's, here's an observation. Maybe, maybe about some of us. I think these last few years of this kind of titanic, cultural, cataclysmic, strange convergence of all sorts of different forces, political strife, racial strife, COVID, has, has had this strange, negative, spiritual fruit in the lives of the church in general, and maybe, maybe, to some degree, in the lives of some of us at Crosspoint. I, I think that COVID although has been a valid health concern, and I say this with all sensitivity because there are members of this church who got very, very sick with COVID. There are members of this church who lost parents and family members with COVID. I want to say, though, that maybe, maybe some Christians have allowed COVID to make us, to almost, in a sense, disciple us, this culture of COVID to make us overly self-protective and overly consumed with our own welfare. And there's a balance there, friends, between being a good steward of your life and the health of your life and other people's lives and being fearful. And I think some maybe have allowed themselves to become overly self-consumed. Not only COVID, but the political strife that we have endured has made us, I think, at times self-righteous. Depending on wherever you land on the political spectrum, you, it's very easy because there is a mega billion dollar media industry that thrives on making you hate people that don't think exactly like you do politically. And it thrives on causing you to be angry because anger sells. And it's caused us to be suspicious of one another. It's caused us to think low of one another. It's caused us to judge one another. And as a result, we sit on our couches and we scroll through our feeds and we flip our channels and we shake our, our heads in self-righteous judgment and we get inside ourselves. And what does this do? It makes us not serve one another. That's an observation. I think some, at various times in this church, might be identified by those traits that I've just described. 
But now, that's an example. Here's an observation, and here's an encouragement. I think there's just so much good stuff going on, and I think there's just so much low-hanging fruit that I want to just give you an encouragement on how really obtainable, how obtainable the, the command that Jesus gives here is. A question that I get asked a lot over the years as, as the pastor in this church is people will say, well, how can I serve? And, and that's not a bad question. I think it's a good question. I think it comes from a good place. But I think sometimes there's a kind of danger that I want to be careful that we don't fall into, a danger when somebody asks, how can I serve the church or how can I serve and do stuff? I don't want us to think about just tangible tasks that you do or that we do for an hour and a half or two hours on Sunday morning. Praise God for that. Praise God for people that are in their 80s that are battling cancer that are serving as ushers. Praise God for the worship team. Praise God for the people that serve in children's ministry. Praise God for the people that will do uh, VBS and, and love on our kids. Praise God for the youth leaders. Praise God for the people that are serving in the tech booth right now. Praise God for the people that are teaching classes and the people that are greeting. Praise God for all of those things. But friends, the reality is, is that most of us, the majority of us, won't do those things, those specific tangible tasks on any given Sunday. And so surely, Jesus, when he says, love one another, serve one another, isn't talking about two hours of some specific task on a Sunday morning only. He's speaking about, I think, these organic, ordinary, unspectacular, but powerful ways that Christians that are committed to one another in life, in a local church, can do slow but powerful things in each other's lives. Things as simple as coming a little early and leaving a little late. Now, I know that's hard to do when you got a bunch of kids, and so I'm not saying this blanket applies to everybody. I know, I know, some of you, it's, a, it's an absolute, it is like V-Day in World War II just for you to get here with your children and for nobody to suffer any major in injuries. I know, I've gone through that stage of life. But for the majority of us, just showing up a little early and having your head on a swivel, and looking for somebody to encourage and meet and greet. And you say, oh, Brad, that terrifies me. I'm an introvert. Well, guess what? There are other introverts in here too. And you just, man, man, just, just find, just be, you guys have like this homing device. I see they look as uncomfortable as I am right now. Let me just go over and let me, let me just love on this person. But again, I'm not just talking about two hours on a Sunday morning. Get to know one another, meet one another get each other's numbers. If you're a member of this church and if you're coming to this church for any length of time, you should be a member of this church. You should be accountable. We should know your name. We should pray specifically for you, which is what we do as elders and pastors. When we gather together, we know your names. Every Monday, every Monday, I look at every name that is a member of this church. I look at it and I want to remember it because I want to remember your name because I'm accountable for you because Hebrews 13, 17 says that I will stand before the Lord someday and I will have to give an account of how I shepherded you. Not just anybody that comes in here. I want to love anybody that comes in here, but I have a special biblical New Testament accountability towards you if you are a member of this church. And I believe that as part of God's means in the Bible to mature his Christians, to put them into a kind of accountable relationship with other believers. And we just happen to call it church membership. Call it whatever you want. But I think it is vital. 
And you need to be in that type of relationship where it's a two-way street, where the leadership has their responsibility and you have yours and you're not always waiting. There's this kind of slow-hanging fruit where we just take responsibility for one another. And God in his sweet kindness is going to give you relationships in his way, in his providence, in his sovereignty. He's going to draw you to certain people as you just open up your heart in the uniqueness and the limitations of the way God made you in your personality and all your rough edges. He's going to put you next to another person. You're going to get to know them, and he intends for you to intentionally encourage them, serve them, and do them spiritual good, and he intends for them to encourage and serve you and do you spiritual good and for you to live life together and for your lives for your lives which never would have come together save for being in this merry band of jesus followers he intends for these two people who never would have been friends for them to be friends in the local church and friends that becomes a display of the beauty of the surpassing worth of jesus and his grace not two people who are in the same neighborhood who who have the same interests who go to the same school, but two people who are just so unlike, unlikely to be together, loving each other in committed accountability in the local church becomes a beautiful display of serving one another. Where a younger man calls an older man and just says, I love you, man. Take me to lunch and share some wisdom with me. Where somebody that is, is just a, has a burden for praying people goes through the member directory and just emails randomly, led by the Spirit of God, people that they are in membership relationship with and tells them, I am praying for you. How can I lift you up before the Lord this week? Do you know the power and the fruit that would have if it spread like wildfire in a local church? Friends, it has the ability, the simple, organic low-hanging fruit or ability to transform a church. Yeah, serving children's ministry, playing the band if you can sing, if you can't sing, do something else. Occasionally teach if you can teach. Greet, wear a nice shirt the day you greet, brush your teeth and smile. All those things are important. But that happens for two hours on a Sunday. There's something just so beautiful about a group of people who just, they just kind of stop thinking about themselves all the time. And they stop letting media outlets algorithm their lives. And they get off social media for half a second and they give their thumbs a rest. And they look at their fellow local church members and they just determined this week, I'm going to do one of my fellow members of Crosspoint some spiritual good. Friends, that is so powerful. That is so powerful. Oh, may we fan that into flame in the life of this church. By serving one another. Secondly, by standing with one another in the world. And I conclude with this. So how do we, here's the question, how do we love one another? Jesus again is speaking. Remember the context. He's not just talking about generally. This isn't just the great commandment, as glorious as that is. Love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Yes and amen. 
But Jesus is actually more specific here. He's saying, you love one another. You. Context, I think, is his followers that will become the early church. So I think the context that we can make to ourselves as the early church, love one another. First, we looked at by serving one another. Secondly, and I'm not getting this from this text, but just broadly from the New Testament, by standing with one another in the world. That's one way we love one another. Look at what we're going to get into in the later summer months in John chapter 15. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse just one chapter, two couple chapters, flip the page. John 15, this is part of his farewell discourse. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus is telling his disciples that the world is going to hate them, and that's true of us if we are in Christ today. If we're true biblical Christians, the world, to some degree, is going to hate us. John chapter 17, this beautiful high priestly prayer of Jesus that he prays for his disciples, and not just for his disciples, but he extends to all those that will follow him through the centuries. He prays this, John 17, let me read verses uh, These numbers are so small, I can't read it here. John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you, and this is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is saying, Lord, don't take them out. Don't beam them out. Leave them there. Leave them there. And part of his prayer in John chapter 17 is for this unity amongst his followers, which finds its tangibleness in the unity of the local church because we live in a hostile world. And we are facing that. We are just beginning to face that on some level, like our brothers and sisters around the world in other places have faced for centuries. And we think about our current cultural moment. Friends, we're in the middle of this month of June where with really, with really neck-breaking speed has all of a sudden become this terrible thing called Pride Month where the world has appropriated the symbol of a rainbow of God's covenant in Genesis, where he judged the world and saved Noah, has blatantly, shaking their fist at God, has taken that rainbow symbol, and now, in utter arrogance, shaking their fist at God, has made it the pride month and the LGBTQA+, and every month there are more letters added to that group of people that are joining their rebellious hearts against God, that agenda is literally plastered everywhere. And we live in a world where any disagreement or dissent of anything that people in that particular voting group or cultural sliver say is scorned 
and mocked and where historic Christian belief is now being categorized as hate speech. And the point I'm trying to make is that in order for you to be a faithful Christian in this world, in order for us to live faithfully, we have to serve one another in the local church and love one another and encourage one another and fortify one another and teach one another and strengthen one another and embolden one another because the heat will only get more intense. And friends, loving the world, as Jesus has commanded us to do, is not to capitulate and lie to the world about sin that is an affront to a holy God. Likewise, loving the world is not being religious hypocrites by throwing darts and arrows at sin outside the church and not taking sin seriously within the church. There are two extremes or ditches that Christians are often prone to fall into. It's the ditch of of theological liberalism. I'm not talking about politics. The ditch of liberalism, just kind of whatever goes. Kumbaya, just anybody that wants to come. We're just going to lower God's clear standards in the Scriptures about what it means to hold yourself as a person, about who you are as a man or a woman, or about what we do with our lives sexually. Just We can do whatever, just whatever. That's, that's the ditch of liberalism, and it kills people. But the other ditch that we are prone to fall into as well is the ditch of legalism where we overlook our own sins and we judge the world for theirs. Friends, the world needs a consistent, humble, bold, gracious, Christ-saturated gospel witness. And there is no way that any one of us can stand the heat without each other. There's just no way that we can do it. And so one of the ways that we can serve one another is by being people that stand with one another against the world. By giving a clear, consistent, humble, gospel-clinging, grace-saturated, sin-forgiving, spirit-empowered message to the world and to one another that this is what it means to be a person. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to not worship yourself and your desires. This is what it means to find your identity, not in your own feelings, but in what the Scriptures have said about what it means to be human and what it means to need a Savior. And friends, I think that the mission of every Christian in some way or another, whether in vocational ministry or in the world, in secular employment or whatever, or in the home raising children, is to give their lives to that mission, to being a witness for that truth, that we are sinners and that Jesus has bore our sin and that those who trust in Jesus are reconciled to God and have a new heart with new desires and now our identity is in Christ, not in our own feelings and now we are enabled to pursue joy in obedience to God and that is incredibly hard so we have to serve one another and link arms with one another and help each other stand 
in this dark world. I think that's two ways that we are to love one another. May we do that. May we do that. May we roll up our sleeves and fight to live like this with each other. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to, it's really easy to say these words. It's harder to live them out. Uh, Lord, I'm not asking for a jolt of motivation for people to care more about being part of Crosspoint or maybe somebody that's been coming for a while that's sort of on the outskirts to all of a sudden join the church. All those might be good movements. But what I'm asking, Lord, is a, a, a real a deep orientation or readjustment in our lives if there needs to be one to really see how practical, ordinary, unspectacular, and plotting is this beautiful work that you've called us to to do life together. Lord, we, we want to serve one another, help each other follow Jesus. And Lord, we live in a hostile world where our children are being ravaged, they're being lied to, where the enemy is wreaking havoc in literally every arena of our public life. And it's easy to get mad at each other. It's easy to be suspicious. It's easy to be discouraged. But Lord, we need to just keep doing the things that you've called us to do. We need to keep serving one another, standing firm, remembering the Word, reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, praying the Bible, and helping each other live out your Word. Lord, this is not easy. Who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we want to be people that help each other follow Jesus. Lord, take this message and use it. Lord, make this church more like Christ to maybe motivate or, or exhort or even chasten somebody that's been taken away by cynicism or self-focus. Or maybe somebody that's prone to buy into the world's false message of what it means to be a man or a woman or a sexual being. They think that they can just live according to their desires. Lord, use this simple message, maybe for some in this room, to chasten them and turn them away from the pit. And Lord, make us more like Jesus. Help me serve these people better. Help me love them better. Help us love one another better. And help us stand more courageously in this day. And now, Lord, as we see this public witness of baptism, may it give us joy and may it put steel in our spines that you have done another miracle before our eyes in saving this husband and wife. And that is what you do through your people for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.